Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Podcast. Like it's 1992, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1992. Here from our perch in 2023, I am your one of your hosts, Phil Isco. I'm your special guest host, Emily St. James, sitting in for your normal host, John Calvin, but not that one. It's a different John Calvin. It's just oh, a guy. different, just a guy, just a guy named John Calvin. It's not the founder of Calvinism. I want to be clear about that. Just Paul Schrader. <laughs> strange, strange name. choice. Name. No, listen, name. listen. It's all going to make sense in a bit. I'm setting myself up. Setting myself up. I love up. it. I love yeah. that you're teeing something up, Emily. It always yeah. pans out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was going to say in for your regular host, Paul Schrader, but if he was like the guest host of this, I think that would Oof. be like it. Like, it would be like an issue. But... People would be like, are you going to get or, canceled for this episode? More people would probably listen, let's be clear, if he was yes. just on here, yes. like, spitting fire. But yeah. I had a friend who, or have a friend, who was in a Zoom poker game with him mm. during the pandemic. Uh, fiery fiery guy apparently so much so that what? he was removed from the poker game <laughs> so, oh yeah, yeah excited yeah who knows uh with us today mitchell Beaupre, editor and podcast host at letterbox thank you so so much for being here mitchell we're, we're very you. excited to talk about paul schrader's light sleeper um i reached out to you you were kind enough to to say you want to come on the podcast uh and this was this was like your number one pick if i remember correctly on the list of of movies um so i gotta ask right out of the gate what is it about light sleeper that uh that that you want to talk about like why this movie 
Woof. Uh, that's a that's a good one. <laughs> I mean, we could talk about it from a high altitude and work our way down. You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just like the you know setting setting the table for it. Uh, I mean, Paul Schrader is my favorite director, and I think that Light wow. Sleeper is, in many ways, I think a really great distillation of a lot of the things that I connect to with him, which are like his films constantly struggle with this idea of feeling like the world is like completely fucked. There's like no point in like existing at all. And then figuring out like, okay, well I do exist. So what am I going to do with that? And like how to navigate through that? What are the reasons to find for living, especially when it feels like, you know, everything is just piling up. There's a, a sanitation strike that is kind of metered throughout this movie where the trash just keeps piling and piling and piling up. And it definitely, I mean, sitting, you know, on our perch in 2023, it feels like the trash is piling up and piling up and piling up and piling up. And, and in the middle like, of a writer's room. What? I've never, I've never had that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like figuring out, like, I, the thing that I love about him is that people can sometimes criticize his movies for being a little bit, like, repetitive. But I find it's so fascinating the repetitions in his films like over the course of his filmography because he is this guy who keeps having these like really dark existential questions of why am i alive what can i do with my life what can i do with like what i'm doing in the world the art that i'm putting out and never really quite maybe getting to the answer of that but like constantly like struggling against it which i think uh reflects a lot of our daily lives like we just keep totally. waking up and trying to make it through the day again and figuring out like why you know, I, it, it's interesting you bring that up because, and I and I sent you there was a, a recent piece in Vulture that I thought mm-hmm. was really interesting that I um, that I sent to both of you, and and um, at the end of it there was this little bit that I was that I was going to read, but I'll read it now because it, it speaks to what you're talking about. Um, Thirty one years later, Schrader has completed a loose trilogy of Man in a Room movies with the recent released Master Gardener, which follows First Reformed and The Card Counter. When I saw The Master Gardener at the New York Film Festival last year, a bit of knowing laughter rippled through the audience when the film opened with a shot of Joel Egerton sitting at a desk scribbling in his journal. There was a comfort in knowing that Schrader was still up to his old tricks and that he might once again manage to excavate something new. By the time the credits rolled after the film's gentle romantic parting shot, I was convinced that he had. I I do think that, and Emily, I'm I'm curious to your thoughts on this too, because I think that people feel like repetition is lazy like i think that there's an instinct as critics and as viewers to feel as though oh you've said this already but i do feel as though some filmmakers and a lot of artists just in general are mining something right like they're trying to get to the bottom of something um and i don't necessarily think that us quote-unquote demanding filmmakers or artists to push themselves outside that box is necessarily a fair take sometimes because it feels like they're wrestling with something what do you think about that emily i mean i hmm. <laughs> i'm thinking about this a lot with with wes anderson who because yes. sure. asteroid city is coming up as we record this wait, as yeah. you listen to this it was released five years ago and <laughs> um it i'm a, i'm still a, i'm still a wes anderson fan um but i like had i have very much um yeah i didn't like grand budapest hotel as much as all of america I liked French Dispatch better than most people, but he definitely is an, a director who's like, he's found his his strike zone and he just mm-hmm. keeps hitting it. And if you like that strike zone, cool. And if you're my wife, you're just increasingly feeling disconnected because you're like- Your wife who did come on to talk about the fantastic Mr. Yes. Fox with us on her yes. Patreon. A movie yes. She loves. <laughs> yeah, she, she did. She does love that movie. So like, but I do like, I think, I think there's something 
useful in repetition. Um, I think about this, actually, I think about this a lot more with music where people are eventually just like, oh, well, you've done that already. Can you do a new thing? And then you do a new thing and everybody hates it. Um, (laughs) You know, and it's just like, I I do wonder like, okay, so Paul Schrader makes like a rom-com. What does that look like? Paul Schrader makes a Marvel movie. What does that look like? But I mean, Paul Schrader is someone who is, uh, 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 for a lot of different reasons, I I can take or leave him in certain ways. There are movies of his I adore. There are movies of his that have bounced off me. I looked up his filmography. He's made like 20-some movies, (laughs) So many of which I've never heard of, which for a major filmmaker is pretty incredible. There's a run Um, in there. There's a run in there of ones that have just kind of fallen by the wayside. Yeah. Yeah. Some but straight to I, videos as well, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there is value in somebody who just keeps ruminating on the same things. I yeah. tend to be more drawn to someone. But I, I, you know what I think is honestly, even people who wildly change up the trappings of what they're doing are usually talking about the same things. They're just mm-hmm. like doing so in wildly different contexts. Um, you know, um, Ari Aster has made three movies that seem pretty different, but like thematically, they're all very similar. Like on the outside, they're they're pretty uh, different films. So, yeah, I think I think asking an artist to leave their comfort zone is sometimes necessary. Sometimes they have sure. to, but usually you're not going to like like I don't think Wes Anderson's going to go and make a John Cassavetti style nitty gritty kitchen sink realism movie and suddenly not make a movie about wistful longing for like a way of life that has passed away you know sure. he's just gonna do it in a john cassavetti style actually i would kind of like to see that i would so. I'd watch it i mean i do think that i mean specifically for schrader right who who has this kind of um i mean some people would argue that he's just ripping off pickpocket <laughs> for some movie uh some people believe that that you know there is that but that's neither here nor there I think that the idea of, you know, um, a a sort of misanthropic male protagonist grappling with their existence and what does it all mean, um, I, there's worse tropes to be mining, if you understand kind of what I'm getting at. Like, I think that he has found something interesting to say each time he has stepped up to the plate with that. And the the, the outlier of, of all of this um, is a movie I love from 99, Bringing Out the Dead, which is a film that he he wrote, adapted the book, um, and Scorsese directed the film. And I vividly remember that film's release and everyone being like, we got a, we got New York, it's nighttime, we got VO, uh, and, and it's basically someone behind a, a corporate vehicle of some sort. <laughs> um, this is going to be, you know, Taxi Driver. And what I love about that movie is how oddly, darkly comedic it is. It's a strange movie that's trying, that's dealing with a whole bunch of different things. And, and I think that movie was kind of put in a box because of Taxi Driver that was a little unfair. And I think that Schrader keeps also unfortunately being put in that box as well, which I think is a little unfair. Like I I watched this movie and it's hard for you, not from the first frame or two to think of taxi driver and American gigolo, right? Like you can't not think about where he comes from as a writer and as a filmmaker. Um, But there's so much more to it. And it feels so lazy to me to just kind of clump them all together and be like, it's all the same. I mean, I'm assuming Mitchell, you feel similarly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, he, those three, he's always like connected as this trilogy, the same way that he connected First Reform Card Counter, Master Gardener as a trilogy. But like you said, I think that there is 
I mean, not even necessarily an evolution because I don't think that each one is like elevating above the other one, but they are definitely doing different things. I mean, Travis Bickle is a very different character than, you know, Gear and Gigolo is a very different character than Defoe and Light Sleeper. And I think that even if these guys are having similar ruminations about the world around them and like, I mean, each of them navigating relationships with women in similar ways, like this one has a very similar kind of dynamic with the two different women that he comes across having that we see him having his relationships with the same way that taxi driver does you know the two women kind of propel where this character's journey is going on and this one has a very similar ending to taxi driver which we could get to um but it definitely feels like the perspective is very shifted and like i I can totally see why people would watch this and have Taxi Driver in their mind like the whole way. But when I watch it, I don't think about Taxi Driver like at all, other than, you know, knowing that it's also from Schrader. But like aesthetically, like formally, structurally, it feels very unique. But it's really the perspective that I think changes how this world is being drawn. Especially, I mean, American Gigolo, I feel like is a completely different movie from being seen through Gears character's eyes. Yeah, this movie felt very sort of. Um, I, I, forgive me if this sounds you know, whatever, but like a little laconic, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean the movie does feel very sort of um, narcole. Uh, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. insomnia. This idea of of just sort of sleepwalking, um, and and Taxi Driver very much doesn't feel that way. That movie very much feels like it's barreling towards the conclusion and we're watching a man slowly unravel in his sanity, sort of losing control. Um, this movie doesn't feel like that at all. And part of it, I think, has to do with um, Willem Dafoe's performance, but also just, I mean, this is such a moody movie. And it's not to say that The Taxi Driver isn't, but um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because like, Emily, you texted me, I want to say like probably halfway through it. <laughs> No, I was I oh. was done. I well, I was just well, the about first done. time when. Sorry, my apologies. Yeah, the my, yeah, text yeah. was I had paused it with ten minutes to go to go grab my oh, my, okay. my child. Yes, okay. the whose name we have just bleeped. We, we're thank you, bleep yes, thank you, absolutely. Ernie. Thank you. Um, we, uh, but yeah, I, I texted, I went to grab my child and brought the child back in and they were like, just normally they love to watch whatever's on the TV (laughs) and they just were like, eh, whatever. (laughs) They could not care less about light sleeper. See the reason that I, so sometimes I get texts from, from Emily where she gives me, uh, her daughter's review of a film, which (laughs) sometimes I'm led to believe is her review. And sometimes it is a genuine review. Yeah. Uh, this time I was unsure. <laughs> so it was uh, it was interesting. It was an interesting journey I went through, unsure as to what you felt of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like I liked it. Um, <laughs> question mark. No, I had it like I did. I did genuinely like it. Um, yeah. We can talk a little bit more yeah, about yeah. Uh, like Paul Schrader and I are too similar in many ways for me to, to wholly get wholly get on his vibe. Like we have very we have very similar upbringings, mm-hmm. and I just like took that in a whole different direction. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, really? Paul I Schrader, didn't know that about yeah. him. To be yeah. fair, yeah, okay. absolutely. Um, we were born in the same city, Phil. Um, this is going to really? be a, a f- yeah. This is going to be. A let's fun just movie. let's just dig into this. Let's pull let's out the couch. This. Let's dig into okay. it. Okay, Grand Rapids, Listen. Michigan. 
Yep, that's where I was born. Uh, mm-hmm. You were both born in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, I yeah. believe he was born many, many years before. He was. Him. It was a long time before me. Um, but <laughs> he, uh, I, I, of course, then was adopted and, and grew up in South Dakota. But I was born in Michigan. I have family I in Michigan. I have, like, real close ties to that. And Paul Schrader went to the same college a lot of my family members went to, Calvin College. He grew up in the Reformed Church, which is a church that I spent a lot of time in growing up. He's very invested in the the, the doctrines of John Calvin, Calvinism, of this idea that, like, you cannot escape your fate, which colors all of his movies. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. like, his movies are for someone who really seems to define the term like lapsed Christian, his movies are like really Christian. These are like Mm -hmm. deeply faithful movies about living in a world that has the weight of sin on it. And he's so tortured and tormented by that. And I feel like I had a very similar upbringing and have very similar preoccupations with sin and all of that. And I just sort of have like taken that in a, in a, in a very different direction in my own work, both critically and, and, and my own writing. But like, so Schrader, like, I love first reform. I think that's a masterpiece. Um, I love some of his, his, I love cat people is I think a great, yeah, hell yeah. A great movie. Um, I love some, I love a lot of his movies and then there's a lot of movies I haven't seen. And then there's a lot of movies where I watch it and I'm like, that was good. And then I never think about it again. Like my wife, my wife went to see a movie and left me with our child and she came back and she asked, how was the movie? And I was like, you went to the movie. You realize this, right? And she was like, no, the one you watched this morning. I was like, the one I watched. And I was like, Oh, right. I watched a movie this morning in preparation for a podcast. But also (laughs) he gets under my skin in a way where like maybe seven years from now, just a random scene from this movie will float to the top of my consciousness. Mm. And I do think that's because we have so much shared background. Like I, Mm -hmm. I kind of bounce off him because he's too similar to me. And I also like, can't quite shake him for the same reason. The Catholicism. Now the Scorsese thing makes a lot of sense. Right. And he's, and he's, yeah. 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 Scorsese's Catholicism is expressed in a very similar way to how Schrader expresses his Mm -hmm. Calvinism's reformed church stuff, because that's all, you know, the the level of guilt you feel in both sects of Christianity Mm -hmm. is very similar and very deep. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's now all starting to make a little bit more sense. And, and I, don't, I don't mean that in a, I don't mean that in a glib way. Like there is now, I, as I, as I mentioned to you, Mitchell, before we got on Mike, I have yet to see first reformed. It's a big blind spot. I'm going to watch it. ASAP. It is on my queue. On Let's my, just pause on this. Thing. Let's pause Let's it. Just pause we'll this. We'll be back in two hours. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. I, I'm very excited to watch it. Um, but I, I do feel as though, you know, when you really kind of break down his filmography in a lot of ways, you can see this, these arcs are, and again, this is not a bad thing, but there is that similarity of people grappling with the idea of faith. And, and that doesn't necessarily need to be explicit in terms of religion. It can be just a faith in, in something in their lives. I mean, Mosquito Coast, which he, which he did, which he didn't direct but, but adapted, is also very much about a man grappling with a faith in the world around him. Um, yeah, a lot of his movies... Um, I mean, obviously, Last Temptation of Christ. Um, but... <laughs> One of my favorite movies of all time. Like, I just, I, I fuck with that movie. Yeah, I love the that movie's movie. great. But Defoe I, I really, like, I'm that looking Jesus at a lot of, <laughs> at a lot of his, I'm just looking at his filmography right now. And, and you can see how so much of them are about this kind of fighting, this, this, um, 
existential crisis, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, of a person that just doesn't, uh, doesn't know how to live in the world, if that makes sense. But what I think is fascinating about, about first reformed and why I think it's his masterpiece is he similarly to Scorsese, he almost became a minister. And then he was like, actually, I'm going to go do another thing. And Pauline Kael encouraged him to become a film critic. And so he like went and was a critic for many years. Then he writes Taxi Driver, has this whole other career. But there's this part of his brain that is Mm. pretty clearly like, what if I had done the minister thing? And First Mm. Reform just kind of examining that. How are you you a minister at this time when it really seems like the planet is irreparably fucked up and irreparably destroyed? How do you get people to believe in something bigger than themselves? And Phil... If you watch First Reformed in the next couple of weeks, my my mother who lives in Grand Rapids, my biological mother uh, who lives in Grand Rapids, uh, her film club is watching it. And uh, one of one of them said it made them feel really bad. But Paul Schrader's like their hometown hero. So they got to like they got to <laughs> check it out. I watch it. I could be in the you in could join club. the film club. Yeah, you could join. <laughs> <the first. laughs> uh, I want to give just a touch of uh, of context for our listeners who might not have seen Light Sleeper. The film follows a Manhattan drug dealer with a wealthy clientele. John Latour, played by Willem Dafoe, revaluates uh, both his trade and his life after discovering that his supplier, Anne, played by Susan Sarandon, is planning on quitting the business. When John runs into his old flame, Marianne, played by Dana Delaney, he sees reconnecting with her as a way to uh, as a way to change for the better, but she is reluctant to rekindle their romance, complicating John's life further as a series of drug-related murders that has the police pegging him as a suspect. Light Sleeper opened on September 25th, 1992 against The Last of the Mohicans, Sneakers, Captain Ron, Mr. Saturday Night, and of course, The Mighty Ducks. It would go on to make a million dollars on a $5 million budget. It has 87% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 64% from audiences. Uh, Roger Ebert gave the film four stars. I'm going to read a little bit of his review where he said, Schrader knows this world of insomnia, craving and addiction, and he knows all about people living in a cocoon of themselves. Light Sleeper is the third in his trilogy about alienated night workers after Taxi Driver and American Gigolo, about a man who supplies sex at great cost to himself. Now comes this story about a man who delivers drugs. There are many parallels in the three films, all involve men in misguided efforts to save or connect with a self-destructive woman and all end in violence. But perhaps because he is growing older and wiser, the characters over the years have become better people. In film after film, for year after year, Paul Schrader has been telling the story in one way or another, but never with more humanity than this time. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is, you know, I, I don't know about you, Emily, but I, I, when I pressed play on this movie, I had sort of these, I don't want to say preconceived notions. I had not seen this film before, but um, I knew that it was having a bit of a renaissance or a resurgence, if you will. I think post-First Reformed, people kind of, started digging back into the Paul Schrader filmography a little bit online. And it felt like this movie started to get a little bit more love, um, which is one of the many reasons why I was excited to talk with Mitchell about it. Um, now, Mitchell, I know this is one of your favorite films. This is uh, this is a four-star letterboxed for you, right? Or five? It's a five-star. Five, five, yeah, yeah, we got, we got a five on LB. Sorry. So, yeah, it's a hard five out of five. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a movie. When did you see this for the first time? When did this movie come into your life? Yeah, it's 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 an interesting um, origin for me with this movie because I when I was like 16, 17, that was kind of peak years of me. I mean, I guess like 14, 15 was like me getting into film and like discovering like Tarantino and kind of those like entry points, Fight Club, Donnie Darko, whatever, like the usual. Um, And then like 16, 17, I was more like discovering who are my faves, whatever. And my favorite actor at that time was Sam Rockwell. 
um and like like that was around like jesse james like snow angel stuff like that i just was really like keying into whatever he was doing and so i went through the thing where like this was back in dvd netflix like all the rage days before like streaming netflix so i was like renting every sam rockwell movie from netflix on dvd and i was like yeah let me get light sleeper to watch it for my boy One sam scene. rockwell who is in a single scene <laughs> um and i i had definitely seen like taxi driver and raging bull um from Schrader before but didn't mm -hmm. have like those were scorsese movies to me like i didn't have enough of a connection with like writers at that point um and so i think it was my first like straighter directed movie and i had a really similar response that i think both of you kind of did as like a much like, younger person who wasn't thinking as like critically and introspectively about films but had like a really like this is fine like this is good like i'm probably never going to think about this again but like it was you know it was solid um and then it really didn't cross my mind again until much later probably around the time of like dying of the light the schrader nick cage movie that got like stolen from him from the studio and like he hated it wanted to recut it and they basically like cut like i mean literally like shut him out of the editing room and didn't let him re-edit released it like absolute garbage and then he recut it himself to, to as close as he could to what his vision would be and released it like for free on the internet illegally and it's still on like the internet archive under the title uh paul schrader's dark which is still a really weird um doesn't feel fully formed movie but it's it's interesting to watch but so i got interested in that story and what was going on with that movie and that kind of led me into then like going into the Schrader catalog and watching like blue collar and hardcore and all affliction Mishima. for the first time yeah. Mishima. Yeah. 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 Sure, sure. And so then that led me back to light sleeper and going back into light sleeper after seeing so much more of his stuff and understanding more about who this guy is learning about the Calvinism and this like inherited burden that he feels like he has that he's wrestling with all the time. And those things really like hit me in a much more substantial way when I understood more about who the guy was that was making this movie rather than just viewing it as, hey, Sam Rockwell's not in this movie more than one scene. This is very confusing for me. You know, it's so I my exposure to this movie is is relatively limited. And by that, I mean, um, I don't know about you guys. I'm older than both of you. So, you know, I have I have a history with VHS. So mm. there's a movie, and I don't know which one, but there's a movie that I watched. Great. There's a great start to a story. <laughs> you like this, you like this. There's a movie I watched constantly as a kid that had the trailer for this in front of it. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was like T2 or something. or I don't know what it was, but there was some movie that I watched incessantly that had Light Sleeper in front. I hope it was T2. I hope they and were trying to bring in the T2 audience. It was probably like Little Mermaid, you know? Disney <laughs> was like, Little Mermaid. Get... Captain I, I Ron. I, I genuinely don't know which movie it was. Um, but there was... So I've seen the trailer for this film innumerable times. And so when I pressed play on this film, I was just like, well, okay, let's do this. It's, it's been 35 years or whatever since I've seen the trailer for this film a million times. And so I really kind of, and I will say the trailer was actually pretty effective in conveying a mood, which is not always something that these trailers do. Um, but I just have that vivid memory of it. And then as I was watching this, it's like this cast is stacked. 
Like, mm-hmm. the, I mean, Jane Addams, who is so good in this movie, who has, you know, a handful of scenes and is, it's got to be one of her first movies. She's very young in it. Um, she plays Dana Delaney's sister, Randy. Um, she looks like such a Randy, too. Like, I was like, <laughs> that, that is a Randy. Um, but, like, she's she's wonderful in this. Um, Ed Lockman shot this film, or Latchman. I think mm-hmm. it's Lockman. But um, so it looks fantastic. Um, it's got, you know this obvious nocturnal vibe as as schrader wants to do um i just yeah i was kind of really kind of taken in by its mood and its vibe more than anything and it is kind of just sort of you got to kind of roll with it movie as opposed to like really not really very plotty um there's kind of a murder sort of going on yeah i i was watching it i was told phil before we started recording that I watched it I've seen it you know plenty of times and last night I was watching it again just to kind of give myself like a refresher before this conversation and it was the first time I watched it with my partner who had always been kind of interested because I knew that like I love the movie and everything and it was their first time they were very mid on it they gave it like a three on their letterbox but <laughs> when we were reading or they were reading like the letterbox plot description and like out loud to me before watching it and like the letterbox plot description is like there are also there are murders happening and like he becomes under suspicion for murder and i'm like don't read like that is not that is not what this movie is about please don't get assumptions based on it like it really is like it's not it's not a plot driven movie it really is that mood thing i liked you said laconic earlier and i think that that's exactly it, it does feel like a movie i think one of the time like the second time that i revisited it i probably watched it at like three o'clock in the morning and it feels very much like a three o'clock in the morning yeah. like you're sort yeah. of half awake drifting through kind of watch and i think that that's what this guy is going through he really is like he's not he's not key he, like he's not connecting to anybody he's not connecting to anything he has no idea like susan sarandon's playing you know his his boss and she has these grand schemes she always has these grand schemes but she's really trying to move into this cosmetics you know game that she wants to link up to and he just has no clue what he's gonna do and like half of the movie the first half of the movie is him like thinking like what am i gonna like i'm not doing anything like i'm just he's just really drifting through it all and the movie feels like it's drifting through it all in a really effective really purposeful way well, uh patrick h willems i've cited this video on this podcast before did a video about uh vibes movies yes. um mm-hmm. he was he was nodding toward tenet and miami vice just basically movies that are like about things looking cool and kind of sleek and like the plot doesn't matter i think that there is also a kind of vibes movie that is movies that feel like not being able to fall asleep mm. it's literally yeah. just like yeah. a whole genre, subgenre of films that are set in kind of this murky nighttime world it feels like a perpetual like 1 30 a.m mm-hmm. and there's like you know just enough like life going on on the sides to know it's not like the time everybody's asleep but yeah this is a movie that feels like having insomnia and it really uh does. Yeah. It, that, that's to its credit that's clear that's what it's going for but like you know you should know that going in i guess yeah. that's what the letterbox <laughs> plot summary should say it should just say this movie it feels <laughs> like having insomnia and mitchell you can do that for me you can make that i can i i literally i literally can't do that i yeah. do think I like... this movie is about murder as much as it's about a garbage strike in cosmetics right like <laughs> i, I... <laughs> I like towards the end, like within the last like 15 minutes of the movie, watching it with my partner, I was like, Did you the garbage strike is over? Look, the garbage truck's picking up, but they were like, There's there's a like what garbage strike? There's a garbage strike in this movie, and I'm like, they've been talking about it the whole time. I mean, there is a shot, and and like I I I don't mind the kind of on the noseness of the garbage strike. I mean, it mm-hmm. is it is not a subtle 
symbol. Not a subtle man. For, not a subtle but man. But there's together. a shot um, when he's he looks at uh, Willem Dafoe looks out his window, and there's like this beautiful overhead shot of you just see sort of the garbage in the alleyway outside his apartment, and there is something really sort of visceral about this idea that he's truly surrounded by garbage that 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 the world is sort of uh piling up around him which i think is really interesting even though i was reading um in terms of production it was a whole problem (laughs) (laughs) yeah so there's this weird thing where like um i guess he wanted the garbage obviously in these exterior scenes but since new york city sanitation department was on the job they kept removing (laughs) all the garbage (laughs) which i think is kind of amazing um yeah i mean it's 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 a very sort of um you know i i was also thinking a lot as i was watching this because emily and i've talked sort of we've talked vibes a little bit on this podcast but like sophia coppola is a real vibe Mm -hmm. filmmaker for me too and i think that she has a similar way of of making films in the sense that she's just sort of wants to to sort of feel how these people like i think that lost in translation is another film that feels like you can't sleep right Uh like there's definitely a little bit of that going on in that movie too um like that's a that's a jet lag movie there's there's insomnia movies (laughs) and jet lag movies like between (laughs) i'm gonna i'm gonna make a list on a popular uh site where you can log films of of insomnia movies and jet lag movies can we we go on screen drafts for jet lag movies emily (laughs) (laughs) yes I'm not sure we can find seven of them, but we can try. Clay, Clay is DMing you both right now. <laughs> let's, let's make it happen. <laughs> uh, I, I also, here's a question. We talked about this a little bit, Emily, but like voiceover, mm-hmm. uh, a thing that people seem great. to love it. Really great in this movie. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I think some filmmakers understand perfectly how to use voiceover. And usually it's because they're not using it to forward the plot in any way. I think the reason people hate voiceover is when it's used as a crutch to just keep pushing the plot forward. And that can be lazy. But this movie is just about like being inside his head and just sort of feeling those ideas ping-ponging around in his head. Um, There's also something about the way that Willem Dafoe writes in his journals. He's really scrawling. Like his (laughs) handwriting is really kind of like like there's just something very um yeah really sort of like uh primal about the way that he's writing uh that i love can we talk he about willem his shirt Defoe off to second? do it yeah <laughs> that's so my that's Defoe. my man that's willem defoe emily hot yeah often <laughs> often yeah like yeah. i yeah you know what sometimes he's not but like i just like willem defoe in the florida project that should be my oh. husband yeah. Should, oh my God. Yeah. That's he that's the dream and man material. And he should have fucking won. He should have fucking won. And you know who won? Your boy, Sam Rockwell. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. We can talk. We can talk about this for for half an hour. I I will say. First of yeah. all, I will say. Uh, there was a point where ter- Will Defoe is my favorite actor. Sam Rockwell is not my favorite actor anymore. There is a very. I don't know. If, I'm not like an awardsy person at uh-huh. all. Like, sure. I used to be, but not really. Like, there's a point where you come, you become very like disenchanted yes. with the awards yes. game. Um, and I, but there's still a frustration with like having an actor like Sam Rockwell, who I think is an extremely talented actor for a long time, was I think not getting the recognition that he deserved. Where like you go through a year where you see a performance like him in Moon and you're like, how yeah. the fuck is that not nom- nominated for an Oscar? Sure. And 
then for him to not only get his first nomination, but then win for that performance in three billboards in that movie. And it's yeah. like, yeah. what did I, all those years where I'm like, why, why can't we get Sam Rockwell a nomination? And it's the Stanley Tucci and Lovely Bones thing too. Like, <laughs> that's the fucking one that you guys do this for? Like, let's let's give Willem Dafoe the Oscar retroactively. We're going to give him yes. the Oscar for Florida Project. Yeah. Sam Rockwell can win the next year for Vice, in which he plays, <laughs> no. you know, wonderful oh, performance no, no. as George W. Bush. Well, the performance he that plays we all George love. W. Bush, right? Yes, yeah. he he certainly does for yeah. like a scene that is basically not even doing as good of an impression as Will Ferrell like doing Bush, and like right. they're like, yeah, nominate it, nominate it, why not? Listen, that- and he. He would be beating Mahershala Ali for Green Book. I prefer the Green Book performance, but Mahershala Ali already has an Oscar. I I think I think I solved it. We just have to give Sam Rockwell an Oscar for Vice, which is not at why all. Why is that? Why do we have to pay the? Why is that it? That's because <laughs> that's the, the only other nomination. You have to you have to do it by the things he was nominated for. So, okay. <laughs> I, I, if that's the choice, then that's the choice. I I do think that. Um, that Willem Dafoe is one of those guys. I mean, first of all, been in a million movies. Like we could spend all day just talking about his filmography, but I do just want to talk about sort of where we are in 92 mm-hmm. in Willem Dafoe's career. Um, he has already been in like 50 movies, but <laughs> um, I- I'll just point out a couple of them to, yes, Emily. Can I put a pin in something? Sure. Remind me to ask you to share a fascinating bit of trivia about the cast of Glee. Go ahead. Sure. We'll do. Okay. <laughs> That's a that's a great tease. <laughs> that's a great it's a great pin. Uh, to live and die in L.A. He's in an '85. Great fucking movie. Underrated great movie. My Platoon favorite. My favorite Defoe performance is to live and die so in L.A. So good in that movie. Yeah. Uh, Platoon in '86. He's also great in that movie. Last Temptation of Christ in '88. Mississippi Burning in '88. I mean, just he's killing it. Born on the Fourth of July in '89. Uh, Cry Baby, Wild at Heart in '90. Like just, I mean, it's <laughs> crazy. This guy is just. And then it's Light Sleeper in '92. 93 not so great for embody of evidence <laughs> um, <laughs> what do you mean what do you mean not so <laughs> and then it's i mean truthfully i think it's, at a certain point he's i don't want to say he starts taking money but he does start doing more bigger budget movies speed two baby speed two being the most egregious but affliction is also that year so he kind of balances the scales a little bit yeah. um and then you know existence in 99 which i love boondock saints he's insane in that movie <laughs> um i mean just what movie is he in uh and then you know american psycho he does have a nomination for shadow of the vampire in 2000 which i think was his first nomination platoon, platoon was for platoon. yeah yeah oh he got one for platoon oh he didn't know that okay. yeah um yeah shadow of the vampire he's great in that and then of course you know he's the spider-man and then uh you know it's... The thing I rewatched all the Raimi Spider Mans yes, uh, yes. for for a thing I did for my newsletter last year, mm-hmm. and the thing about him in Spider Man is he does the I'm a guy who goes crazy thing. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. better than anybody, even better than Jack Nicholson, mm-hmm. and he like kind of the entire genre of superhero movies had to like do other things because he just like <laughs> hit the pinnacle and yeah. like everything every. Even when it's like Alfred Molina playing Doc Ock, like they have to find a new twist on this basic idea. And like, yeah, I I rewatched it and I was like, yeah, they just never, they've never been better than that. Yeah, he's. No, please go ahead. I was going to say, like, one of the things with him that I love is is he's so unpredictable and he is like not an actor that like you can pin into anything like he's not he is a character actor, but he is so like distinctly morphing himself through everything and every single performance like the spider-man him playing osborne like you 
you feel like you have a sense of knowing what that character is going to be, even rewatching it now. Like I rewatched it last year for um, Jen Johan's podcast. I went on to talk about Defoe for a while. And I, one of the films that we talked about was Spider-Man and I rewatched it for the first time in a while, like thinking I remembered like distinctly what that performance is and everything. And it has so many different notes to it. Just that scene with like the Thanksgiving dinner and the way that he turns from being like menacing to weirdly being like very sexual and like erotic and like like he makes it work like he is arousing in that scene but then also really fucking funny and campy in like the Raimi way and then also bone chilling it within like two <laughs> minutes of, of all of it it's like really fascinating how he can pull it off well it, you know we could obviously spend hours talking about his Spider-Man performance, but I'll just say this one other thing about it. There are very few people that could pull off a scene talking to a mask on a chair. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is, again, like this is a testament to, to, to what Raimi's doing with those Spider-Man movies most of the time, which is just finding that balance of like the theatrical with the grounded. And so much of it is in the casting, but like Willem Dafoe is one of those guys who kind of a chameleon, you know what I mean? Like he's done so many different things and, and he can do so many different things. And what I think is so interesting about the performance in this film is how I found it kind of disarming up top. Like I found myself just sort of like, I, I in a weird way, I almost was like, is he miscast for the first half of this movie? I don't think he is. But in the first half, I was just like, he's kind of a sweetheart. And he's kind of like, there's this kindness to him and this humanity to him. And and then there's just sort of this like anger is the wrong word, but just sort of retribution that he feels is necessary by the end of the film. Mm. Um, and this guilt that he feels about his relationship with Dana Delaney. But like he's doing all sorts of shit in this movie that I'm not sure I've ever seen him do before, which says something because the spectrum of what he's capable of doing is pretty unbelievable. But the movie opens in such a sort of kind of nonchalant way. He just feels like kind of just a guy. Um, he almost is meant to bleed into the woodwork. Like he doesn't mm. stand out, which is feels intentional based on the job that he has and 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 what have you. But um, yeah, I was just really kind of taken with him in this movie uh, in a way that I that or just feeling like I saw flavors of him that I had not seen before, which I thought was really interesting. Um, I, I the the other person in this film who I, I want to unpack for a second is Susan Sarandon. Um, someone who I love, has... I love every her hair, boss bitch. Her vibe, <laughs> her vibe in this movie is yeah. kind of fascinating to me. Sort of mother hen, kind of also like everything. Running, uh... Sorry, go ahead, Emily. Yeah. Everything about how she's styled feels like mm-hmm. Paul Schrader. Feels like Paul Schrader would like to his costume designer or makeup people is just like, hey, go do what you want. It's fine. It'll turn out fine. And it does. <laughs> it does. It really does. That like that coat that she's wearing at like yes. the, the climax where she's just mm-hmm. walking into, into this building wearing a coat. Like she could be wearing nothing underneath it. She could be wearing, you know, whatever underneath it. She's just owning every single room that she's in in this movie. It is exquisite. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It, it's, and there's also, you know, she, she has a, she gets a best actress nomination this year for lorenzo's oil mm. um very which, very different movie <laughs> which could not be a more dissimilar movie no. or dissimilar performance um you know an, another actor who just is killing it in the fucking 90s where like her run in the 90s is pretty unreal and even i would even go as far back as like the a little bit of the 80s too but like i mean she's thelma and louise She's in The Player as well, playing herself in 92. She's in Bob Roberts briefly. She's in this. She's in Lorenzo's Oil. 
Then she has the client, Little Women, Dead Man Walking. I mean, it's pretty crazy, the run for her through the sort of early, mid-90s. Um, she's just so watchable. And um, there's like the, a maternal energy she's giving off in this movie. But also kind of, I mean, certainly at the end, she wants to fuck Willem Dafoe by the end of this movie. Who so doesn't? there's that. <laughs> but like the the energy in her, I mean... Is it, I guess it's her apartment slash office. Is that what we're led to believe it is? Yeah, I think so. But there's like this almost mundane quality to them in this office. Like when they're ordering Thai food. I mean, they feel like, like family. Like it's, right? it's, yeah, it's really well done. It's fascinating to me. And it's like, oh, but they're also monsters getting people high on drugs all night long. Um, I, I just really, uh, I found her arc fascinating. I found sort of what she goes through. And then by the end of the film, this sort of acknowledgement that things got had clearly gotten out of hand or out of control and, and that Willem Dafoe's life is in danger. And all of these things that sort of, I think she knows are at the periphery of the world that she works in, but is kind of either ignoring or keeping at bay. Does that make sense? Yeah, she has that in her own way. She feels like she's kind of drifting too, and like she has these these schemes, these ideas. But as he said, as Latour says, like she always is talking about, you know, the next thing she's going to do to get out of it or whatever, and it never really happens. And it takes what happens here, the climax of this like violence and like her being tangentially involved in criminal activity that is, you know, raised to police awareness that she like is forced out of it, and it is a thing for both of them where things have to get, which I think, you know, speaks to a lot of people's experience, including myself in many different ways. Like things have to get so bad. You have to like hit rock bottom to then turn around and like finally push yourself out of it to where like it can't, it literally can't get any worse, like physically cannot get any worse. And then you have to push yourself through it. And I think that that happens with both of them and they kind of find each other again in this journey. Like you can tell that they had a close bond before and now like they have that sort of that relationship that you can have with family sometimes where like you are comfortable with each other you know each other but there is a little bit of like tension a little bit of like this person doesn't really give a shit about me like they're only comfortable with being around me because we've been around each other for so long but like there is a distance between them he doesn't feel like like there's not even really a, a conversation about whether he's going to go with her or not for the majority of the movie. Like it happens at some point, but it's mostly like an understanding that she's moving on to this thing and he's not going to go with her. And I found that really interesting. And it really is the experience that everybody goes through here that like brings them back together. And there's something really beautiful in finding, you know, each other and finding connection in the kind of muck of how fucked up the world is. And I think that's what happens a lot in these straighter movies where it is like the world is an absolute disaster Mm -hmm. like how like what's what's the point of going on and it is finding connection with another person that gives you that sense of purpose no absolutely it's it is interesting how there is almost this kind of empty nest vibe going on right where it's like Mm -hmm. it's almost like he knows he's being kicked out of the nest a little bit and that he knows that that this um this page is being turned whether he wants it or not and it's making him reevaluate and, and sort of put him into a little bit of an existential crisis. And then that sort of colliding with these two sort of, as he thinks, fatalistic meetups with Marianne's character, that it all kind of starts to feel jumbled. You know what I mean? And he starts to kind of have this feeling as though it's all meant to be, which mm-hmm. is why I think that the ending is so kind of fascinating in the sense that like, yes, it barrels towards this 
you know, uh, violent confrontation at the end of the film, but ultimately that almost feels thematic, right? Like something has to give, something has to break, and that's the thing. And then he's literally like removed from the equation by being put into jail, and which forces him to really, you know, deal with his yeah. demons. Um, yeah, There's, it's, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Amanda. There, one of the things I find very Christian about Trader's movies is there is a there's a rich sense of reformation, mm. um, a sense of so there's this thing in a lot of Christian churches where you tell the the conversion story basically the story of how things got so bad that you hit rock bottom and then the only thing you could do was turn to Jesus and then things turned around for you and you got better you got better you got sure. better you got better this has particularly been pernicious in evangelical circles if you can think back to the um, 2000 campaign of George W Bush as played by mm. Sam Rockwell he uh, <laughs> he he like used his, in his Oscar narrative performance <laughs> yeah he used his narrative of i was an alcoholic and mm-hmm. these things happened and then i came back and i found Jesus blah 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 but like that is that's baked into christianity this idea of you cannot be saved mm. of your own volition you need to get to a point where you have to call out to some other force in this case jesus god whatever uh-huh. And like that is like Schrader has taken that basic concept and sort of transplanted it to a more secular worldview. Sure. But he definitely like I think a lot about how much of our society is built around a religion that we no longer really practice mm. is built around this idea of like this commune, this communal uh, space in which we all come together and make each other better and ponder questions of the universe. And it rarely worked out that way, but that's like the ideal. And Schrader's movies are so much about like, a longing for that space, even as you sort of don't believe that it exists, which is why connection in his films is so powerful. I'm going to talk myself into really liking Paul Schrader. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> I'm just Mitchell's here to open just up the door. Quietly, <laughs> just quietly watching you fall deeper and deeper in love with Paul Schrader's work. <laughs> Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Wow! Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I, you know, it, it, I absolutely agree with what you're saying, though, Emily. Like, it, this movie does feel like, you know, Latour's character is, I mean, he's certainly wrestling with something. And he's certainly wrestling with demons, his past, this relationship with Marion, um, his drug addiction, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. But then also just feeling like he's a pusher. You know, he, all of his interactions with his clients... Um, are all kind of fascinating. David Spade, by the way, 
killing his one scene. Tidy whities <laughs> Tidy whities uh, he's he's great, and it made me wish of for a completely he was on SNL stuff. at this point, right? Like is he, he was on SNL. What's the question? Ninety two was yeah maybe. It seems early. like he's in the very early days of it. Maybe because right. there's a part of me that's like, what a David Spade career could have been had he embraced sort of dark comedy. It, and... Yeah, it's crazy to see him in this, like, <laughs> yeah, like with what he is now. Yeah, it's it's yeah. It was, it's just... He started SNL in 1990, so yeah, you're dead oh, on. Yeah, two years into SNL. His uh, his character's name theological cokehead, which I love. <laughs> But the but that, the, that's me in another world, honestly. <laughs> Theological cokehead. But like the VO that John has in that moment talking about how like clients just, you know, I can only fucking imagine what it must be like to be a drug dealer being stuck in people's apartments while they're high and just like spiraling yeah. and talking about all sorts of, you know, nonsense. Um and, and you do, I guess, become sort of like a bartender, right? Where it's like there's this weird kind of push and pull. Now, obviously, when you're a bartender, you know, alcohol isn't nearly the same as, you know, cocaine or whatever. But, like, there is something really interesting about that relationship and how Latour is grappling with that. Or it, you're like a priest, you know? That's yeah, Schrader, this... Schrader does this thing, like, so often. I mean, Taxi Driver, American Gigolo as well. Like, he, he loves these characters who exist in this like transient like transactional profession Mm -hmm. a cab driver does it like people get into his cab he has a relationship with them for however long they're in the cab and then they get out a gigolo you know gives them a specific experience for a specific amount of time the drug dealer is going in to do this thing they feel like they can push like whatever their like he exists for them in that moment. He is something like a vessel for them to put their thoughts on as Spade does. He's, you know, spouting theological cokehead nonsense to him for however long he wants until the guy leaves. And then the guy leaves and you don't think about him again. Like you're, you're not thinking of like what your drug dealer is doing, you know, when you're at home without him or whatever. And the priest is, is exactly the same thing, Emily. Like he, he exists in that space for what, he can provide for another person, but they're not really thinking about what they can provide for him. And I think that that's a character type that Schrader comes back to again and again and again. It's I, like how my, it's like how my therapist only exists for one hour a week. And then she goes into like a little closet <laughs> and she powers exactly. down. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, it, it's interesting. Cause like, I agree with everything you guys are saying. And also things get dicey when they're not transactional, right? Mm-hmm. Like when th- that's when things get, sort of complicated and it's when the protagonist doesn't know how to deal basically right like the relationship with marianne is a relationship that's you know or or even the 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 fucking guy who won't leave his apartment and uh the 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 one client who's like just spinning out in his apartment's just like filling up with garbage and you know it's it's when that relationship becomes sort of tied in some way or 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 you know uh that's when things get fucked up it's, yeah, and the, the okay when it's the Victor more. Garber character is kind of similar yes. too, where like Peace. he yeah. he is like such a presence, and like Defoe knows, like Latour knows that like this guy's bad news. They don't want to get involved with him, but he has a specific value to Susan Sarandon for this cosmetics thing that she's getting into. So even when Latour knows that like I can't, I shouldn't be going back to this guy. This guy's dangerous. You know, we don't know what's going on with this guy. There's the pressure to keep going back because it is the more that you get invested for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, capitalist value or personal value, 
the more that 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 bridge becomes like built and you're you're connected to that person in a way that can become like destructive rather than having that absolutely and that separation so you brought up victor garber who is just swimming in the the river of very interesting performance (laughs) (laughs) a performance when i saw the movie like I didn't know who Victor Garber was when I first saw it when I was like sure. a teenager, but by the time I revisited it, I knew who Victor Garber was. And even still, I watched it and was like, is that Victor Garber? <laughs> like for the first at least like scene that he's in, I'm like, is that Victor Garber just a a European man who kind of looks like Victor Garber? <laughs> uh, Emily, did you uh, did you like Victor Garber in this film? I mean, I always love Victor Garber. He's <laughs> he's having a blast. <laughs> so like he's always having a good time is yes. the thing. Like, I just, like, I feel like if Victor Garber just showed up in my apartment, he'd be having a blast. And, like, I love his, I love his whole deal. There's just something about the way that he just kind of plays a nebulously European man. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I Like, I, he's kind of, he does definitely, he feels like he's there just to make the plot go, but as character, as actors you cast as a character who's there mostly to make the plot go, like Victor Garber's at or near the top. He's, you know, it's so funny because um, he has a bit part in singles, as you remember, Emily, obviously as, uh, as uh, Debbie Souter at the end of that film, he shows up with a mustache. Yeah. What, what a, what a handsome fella. <laughs> he looks great. Um, I think I have such a dad association with Victor Garber, be it Alias, even in Titanic, he's got kind of this father-like component to it. So when he gets shot in the face, <laughs> it found it quite disturbing. Uh, it just, I didn't realize, I mean, like, when, oh no. Uh, that just made me feel like even more like he was my dad. So <laughs> I'm just like, That's dark. this is where we unpack my trauma. What's up, I, uh... what's up with that glee thing? What's up with that glee thing? Yeah, what's up with that oh, glee? You want to yeah, talk? Let's talk. Okay. <laughs> so as we are recording, this is the day after the Tony Awards, and Alex yes, Newell, yeah. former mm-hmm. Glee cast member, they Indeed. won. Uh, yeah. They won a historic Tony Award for uh, featured actor in a musical for their mm-hmm. performance in Shucked, which I hear is fantastic. Uh, both them and the, and the show. Only one other Glee cast member has won a Tony Award. This person has won two Tony Awards. And I will give you a whole bunch of hints, and I would bet you will never guess. Problem is, I know it already because I saw it you on do? Twitter. So I'm not going to. I'm not well, going to. But Mitchell, do you know who this person is? Do you know the Glee cast well enough to be able to do this? <laughs> I, I, pro- I probably know like top ten ish cast members. Could, if they're, you, in, if they're in the first two seasons. Yes, yeah. this person was a regular in season one. In season, and one. I'll tell you this: they did not win a Tony for performing. They have won a Tony for producing. They have randomly become like one of the most significant oh, theater producers. It's but yeah, they're a season one regular. You can just say character name. You don't have to know the actor name, but okay. uh, guarantee you won't get it. You're not going to get it. I, oh, I'll say okay. this. Um, it, it is, it's not who I thought. <laughs> like when I saw this, I was like, huh, that's interesting. Um, and, and I also don't know that I knew it was for producing. Um hmm. But Emily, please go ahead and uh, and for our listeners. I just want to see if Mitchell can do it. I, I yeah, listen, I, I mean, want to see Mitchell for their moment. So, this so is their big moment. Saying, yeah. Is it? Would it be Kurt? Chris Cole? No, it's a good no. Guess, it's I feel a like really it's, good guess. I feel like that's too obvious of a guess though. Because and see, the thing is that like the ones that I would remember are either 
you know, sadly not with us anymore. Or like, yeah. I mean, it, like it's obviously not Leah Michelle. It's obviously now, not. Leah Michelle's never been nominated for the Tony. <laughs> I think is she was there last night though. She was she was there last night. She's saying a rain on my parade for the millionth fucking time. The millionth time. She's, she gonna, she's gonna she's gonna get people to love her yet. It's gonna happen. <laughs> is she? Is she? I I I I'm turn I'm turning on her. She's so try hard. <laughs> Can't help it. I, so Emily, you give up, Mitchell. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would give up. I mean, I'm assuming it's not like Matthew Morrison because I no, feel like I would God, know if it was no. Matthew Morrison. Matthew Morrison has been nominated one time. I checked this. Oh it's wow, Jenna, it's Jenna Ushkowitz yeah, who I played Tina Cohen Chang. She produced. Oh wow, the, good for her. She produced the revival of Once Upon an Island, Once Upon the Island, which won Best Musical Revival in 2017, and she produced the play The Inheritance, which won Best Play in 2021. She has two Tony Awards for producing. Jenna Ushkowitz, please produce this podcast Broadway adaptation. Wow. <laughs> Leah Michelle Nunn. Leah Michelle, not a nomination, let alone not a, two not Tonys. A nomination. I mean, it is pretty incredible that she's never got a nomination, which to me just shows like <laughs> Broadway is not well, into her, man. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. She's done so little stage work since she became famous. Like she, mm. she could like in theory, the one nomination she could have gotten was Spring Awakening, and it just didn't happen. So yeah, she has the same birthday as me. Oh, really? Which is nice. Are, I, had, are you... I had such a huge crush on her during the, the Glee years. Oh, and then sure, sure, sure. finding out that she was a piece of shit kind of <laughs> rocked my world a little bit. Do you two text? Are you friends? You, you born guys, the same day? She's, she's in the other room. We, we live together. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it is, it is amazing. I was watching the Tonys last night um, with my roommate. And we were just sort of because, you know, then, then uh, Leah Michelle comes out and she sings, you know, Rain on My Parade again. And and it is just sort of this like determination, as you alluded to, Emily, of just like, I am going to get you to fucking <laughs> like me and you're going to give me a fucking award. And I, I just I respect it, but it it's not working on me yet. I just I just I love I love that energy. Like I, you know, I've always liked Jessica Chastain. I have reached a point where I love Jessica Chastain because <laughs> all she's doing is things that are like, you are going to think I'm the best fucking actress in the world. Yeah. And I'm gonna win. I'm gonna win that egot, and you're gonna love me. And I'm. Did like, you see I, her face when she lost last night? She's she not happy. Yeah, you know oh, though. Shit. You know she's gonna be back. She's gonna make it happen. That's the Jessica. <laughs> that's the Jessica. That's Chastain the arc. Way. That's the arc. Now, now that's it's just her a, energy. Now it's a knock. Yeah. It's just the yeah. look on her face where because you know it's like I'm gonna do a Doll's House on Broadway. Yeah, and you're gonna think I'm amazing. And the thing about it is. The whole show, she sits in a chair and all she gets to do is act with her face. And she's like, you're just like, well, how's that going to lose? And then Jodie Comer comes in and does a one woman show where she like, like does all this stuff. And it's like, and she, of course she lost to that. So Jessica, I feel your pain. Come on the pod. We got, still got, we still got big B open, still got Beethoven open. Um, <laughs> also Phil, still waiting. Phil, let's go to, let's go to New York and see Shucked, you and I together. Yeah, sure. I feel, I feel like you would, you would have, understand me a lot better if we went to see Shucked. What, would I? Yeah. Does, does yeah. Shucked, okay, is there, we'll go to see Shucked. I don't know about you. We'll go to see Shucked, and then we'll go see um, a Paul Schrader movie, and you'll understand me sure. in my totality. I, so here's the thing about Shucked. Uh, I didn't know Shucked existed until last night. And then they sang a song. It's a huge hit. It's a huge hit. I'm. I don't. I saw tweets. I saw Joe Reed tweeting about Shucked, and I was like, "What's he referencing? (laughs) What is that?" So he was was subtweeting Shucked, and (laughs) I was. I I I didn't know Shucked existed. And then they sang a song about corn, Emily. 
and I was like, is this Waiting for Guffman? Is this Stool Boom? Mm. Like, what is this musical? I have heard that it's very funny and very okay. good. It All Like, right. the thing is, like, it started life as a hee-haw musical. And then they were like, there's nothing in hee-haw. That's not IP we can mine. <laughs> and they were like, well, we got to have some IP. And they were like, our new IP is corn. And everyone was like, everybody knows what the corn ultimate is. IP. We can do this. We can make the ultimate IP a vegetable. <laughs> But like uh, uh, it's written, it's written by some really great country I music bet. songwriters. Sure. So like I th- and I think yeah, I I think it's just very silly humor and like people are. It looks like it because that song looked crazy. Um, let's I, go see it. Let's go. See let's it. get I'll, shucked. Let's get I'll shucked. Get shucked with you. <laughs> get shuck pilled. Yeah. We're gonna get a shucked movie in like ten years starring Jessica oh, Chastain. Sure. <laughs> that... <laughs> These two worlds finally merge. <laughs> Um, so I, I do want to pivot back to Light Sleeper for just interesting. a brief, uh, what? Just interesting. For, for Why? Weird, weird choice, uh, but yeah, I mean, sure. Uh, <laughs> I, I, so, so Dana Delaney is someone who in my Excellent. brain, Fantastic. she is very good in this. I can't say that I, I, so, and I don't know if you have this, uh, as well, Emily, cause we did, um, passion fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have sneakers as well. Uh, Marie McDowell, McDonald, McDonald. Mary and Dana yeah. Delaney, in my brain, kind of the same person. Is I that alliteration? <laughs> yes, that's what it is. It's the alliteration. <laughs> that's, that's the reason. They also look very similar and, and, and both had similar haircuts in the 90s. <laughs> um, but like, and they have kind of a similar energy. I, I think that Mary might be a couple years older than her, but still, there's kind of a similarity there. Dana Delaney, what do I know her from, though? Like, what, what would you say is her biggest thing? I mean, she's been all over television. Like her, she's mostly mm, TV, like known for her, TV, right? Her enormous calling card is China Beach, which is one oh, of the China great, Beach, sure, one of the sure, great sure. TV dramas of great that show. era. Great show, uh, yeah. Fan, yeah, fantastic show. gives gives John Wells his start. Never like a highly rated show though, but she no. won a bunch of Emmys for it. Yeah, um, yeah, she definitely feels like she's done a lot more television right? stuff, you know. So um, she's very good in this. I'll say yeah. that if if I have one kind of you know, macro thought on this film that kind of bumped me a little bit. It's that I do think they rush Marianne a little bit. I'm not sure that the piping's totally laid for this kind of about face that we get with her, where it comes to her falling off the wagon and then like, not just falling off the wagon, but then her suicide, like it's all kind of time sort of really collapses on itself a little bit. And I think it does her a little bit of a disservice character wise. Um, But the scene she's in, especially sort of these like, you know, two-hander talky scenes with her and Willem Dafoe are really beautifully done. The scene in the cafeteria in particular mm-hmm. at the hospital when her, when her mother is dying. Um, really good stuff. And and they really show, they feel like they have history, if that makes sense. Like, you really feel the years of, of codependence they had on each other. Um, yeah, she's really good in this. I, I don't know. I... I, I I was just a little bummed that it felt like, and I don't know if this was an editing thing. This film's only about 90 minutes long. So I do Mm -hmm. wonder whether or not there's a little bit more in there, a little more real estate for us to feel her descent because it just feels very quick. But um, what did you think about Dana Delaney in this film, Emily? Um, Still thinking about shucked. Sorry. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, I love I I I, gen- I generally love Dana Delaney and you talking about like how uh, it feels like she's kind of ushered out of the movie abruptly. 
you know i think that's true but like i did it had not occurred to me once because again i think this movie's sort of faith parable status that's such a that's again that's such a trope of the story of conversion of reformation is like oh and then the person fell off and suddenly like two days later they were dead it's just (laughs) it's such a trope of that and it's like it does feel to me like the stakes of this movie are not quite real they're a little bit more existential and that like Mm -hmm. underlines them so i kind of felt like i wasn't supposed to by that it had happened even if it had actually happened if that makes sense yeah i hear you on that i guess it's also the type of movie that like i don't think you can put the plot moves under a microscope i don't think it's expecting you to um so i i don't mean to be too hard on it in that regard um there is a moment in the marianne thing that i love where so like they have sex in the most like Fucking I, way. Uh, yeah it has to be mentioned that she we are seeing them naked like on the bed facing each other she looks down and says that's quite an erection he says some very like philosophical straighter line that nobody would ever say and then she says i'm dripping and like blet like credits a day in delaney like it does not take you uh, yeah. that far i mean my yeah. partner was like what and i was like she's dripping what do you she's yeah, what what didn't you understand? It's, Listen, it's just yeah. as as a cisgendered heterosexual woman, I know that that's how it is when you have yes, sex yes, with that's a how man. It is. You're, yeah. Sometimes you're just stripping, and sometimes you know Willem Dafoe has that effect on women. Is the thing? He you I know, mean, he's, he's probably what. Honestly, yeah. you guys know the the Antichrist story, right? The Lars von Trier, the penis story with Willem Dafoe. No. no. So please Lars... tell it. Antichrist, um, you guys have seen Antichrist, right? The... I know of it. I can't watch it, but I know what happens. Okay, so there is a a penis, an erect penis in the movie that is representing Willem Dafoe's penis. It is a prosthetic penis, and Lars von Trier has said that the reason why it's a prosthetic penis, Willem Dafoe and von Trier initially wanted it to just be Dafoe's penis, but he said that when he saw Willem Dafoe's penis, it was so distractingly large that it had to be a prosthetic because it would take people out of the movie if they really saw his actual penis. So, I mean, Dana Delaney's saying man. that's quite an erection. I buy it. I buy, yeah. I buy that it is quite an erection. That's... Wow. That's not what I expected the story to be. I, I was, I, I, but, but I also just love that Willem was like, yeah, yeah, let's, sure, go to town. I got, I got nothing to be uh, worried about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's incredible. Yeah, that scene is, um, the sex scene is just so like, intellectually sexual do you know it what gets I mean? a like... little bit like out of and i think i think it is abby to speak to what emily was talking about with the the parable idea it also speaks like lockman in that scene is really like pushing on the gels like it's very like red and like green and turquoise yeah, yeah yeah and i read that like lockman wanted the movie overall to have that look but straighter to the like laconic insomniac mm-hmm. kind of vibe like he did he wanted the movie to be very great and mm-hmm. so like he kind of pushed back on lockman about that but in that scene like entered the chat for the perfect for the perfect moment Um, like that scene is like so that the aesthetic for that scene helps it feel a little bit like out of reality in in an effective way yeah it's it's interesting because i feel like when you think of the neons that exist in uh american gigolo which is a couple years Mm -hmm. previous right um it's understandable why he would want this movie to be very sort of like um slate and kind mm-hmm. of gray and, and and colorless very kind of monochromatic um so when you do get into marion's apartment and you have this sex scene and you have this sort of post-coital scene on the ground like 
it, it, it does make you sort of feel like life has entered the equation in a way, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the kind of intoxicating quality that they have on each other and how everything must sort of feel dialed up when they're together, which I think is an interesting way of doing that aesthetically, visually, um, which I appreciated, but I will say that like, it's not hot. <laughs> like, no, you know what I, I mean? Like, it's not, not it's not, a, it's not, I was aroused. intrigued, but, but not sure. aroused. Yeah, no, sure. Who wouldn't be intrigued by, you know. <laughs> intrigued, uh, but not aroused is the like reform, Christian reformed way of having sex. <laughs> That's a song in Shucked, right? Intrigued, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't a little digging. Shucked is apparently one part music man and one part hee haw and one part like a story about the corn industrial complex. So we're gonna we're gonna crack shucked by the end of this podcast. We're gonna crack shucked. So the thing I was gonna that I was gonna refer to earlier is the moment when John calls the hotel so that he can record Marianne's voice on the outgoing (laughs) voicemail message on his ghetto blaster Mm -hmm. and then proceeds to play her saying her name over and over and over again incredible i mean who hasn't hasn't his mattress that is like on the ground but it's also like the flattest mattress i've ever seen so like you just sleep on the ground bro like you are sleeping on the ground like (laughs) it's yeah i mean it it's 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 something else I, i mean it's 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 fantastic um can we talk about the psychic for a quick second here? Because the psychic, yeah. uh, there's a psychic played by Paul Schrader's wife, uh, Mary. Mary Beth um, Hurt. There it is. Um, and essentially, he goes to her. Um, and again, this kind of plays into this kind of insomnia vibe where mm-hmm. the episodic kind of characters that we continue to pop in on his journey through this sort of like nocturnal world or whatever. So, of course, there's a psychic mixed into this. (laughs) And this psychic kind of just ultimately tells him what he already knows and is sort of predicting of his future and how sort of, like, grim the outlook is, I guess, is basically the best way to describe it. Like, it almost feels as though she's holding his hand towards this destiny that he knows he has to achieve. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I think that, and I, like... I like that they don't play the psychic up more. Like she's in two very distinct scenes. I feel like a lesser movie. The thing that you guys were talking about with narration, like yeah. being very like plot moving, like the the psychic in a lot of movies would have been a much more prominent thing because that is the the one like externalized kind of example of us seeing what his kind of thought process is and like what his fears are and his fears that there is like like he he keeps asking if his luck is running out and. Mm-hmm. I think that that is a good way of us understanding what he is afraid of, that he's not writing in the journals, which I think is also interesting, that he's not writing diaries about feeling like his luck is running out. He's just writing diaries about having that kind of transient, like, drifting existence. And she, and I think the first scene with her, she says, like, everything you need is around you. The only danger is inside you. And that's, like, I mean, again, like, not not the most subtle thing in the world, but I think it's one of those things where, like, he needs to hear it, but he doesn't hear it in the moment because he is still looking at the people around him for, like, that sort of purpose, right? Like, the, the Dana Delaney, he's trying to connect to his past and not, like, looking at his future. And, like, he he senses, like, I think he just takes the wrong lesson from it, right? Like, she's saying, like, everything you need is around you. And he's, sure. like, looking into his past because Dana Delaney just came into it. And he sees that as a sign, but he still, like, isn't quite getting there. 
yeah, it's it 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 feels like he just needs some kind of nudges, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Like he's he he's certainly kind of chewing on things, and she's sort of the one to be like, yes, you're you're right in the assessments that you're making about the things that are going around you. Yeah, I love that the the psychic also is so clearly you can see how she's working him. Mm-hmm. She does not. It's never implied that she's like an actual psychic. You know, you get the sense that, like, you see how she's, like, figuring out what this guy needs her to say. And Mm -hmm. she's, like, zeroing in on it. And she says general enough stuff, and he'll be like, that doesn't sound right. She'll be like, keep that in mind. (laughs) The Uh, second scene, the second scene with her is so good because he, like, goes to her in the middle of the night, like, frantic and is, like, trying to, like, get her to say, like, and, like, wakes her ass up, and she's, like, like, whatever, like, and just kind of giving him, like, platitudes, and it's, like, not the right one, so then she, like, shifts to, like, a different one, yeah. and then he's, like, okay, great, and then, like, leaves. <laughs> so it's, like, let me just try this instead. Go on. <laughs> Do they have, like, all-night psychics? I feel like I've never... I, yeah, I, I don't no, know. <laughs> I never saw that show Shut Eye. Remember that, uh, that Hulu show, I believe? Is I really thought you were going to say Shucked. <laughs> I don't Shut remember. Eye. I don't remember Shut Eye. Shut Eye no, was a, about either. a psychic, but I can't remember if it was about like an all night psychic or I, I don't know. Was I, Gabriel Byrne working all night in any of the episodes of In Treatment? Uh, you know, <laughs> there were a couple of times. He was like He's episodes. a therapist. Yeah. What am I talking about? I <laughs> I collate psychic. Sure. <laughs> <It's> Apparently. Like, <laughs> it says a lot about what my therapist and my relationship is like that I'm like psychic. Wow, Shut Eye ran two seasons. How have I not? Yeah. Who is the lead in Shut Eye? Uh, Jeffrey Donovan. Oh, Jeffrey. Jeffrey Donovan. Jeffrey Donovan. Donovan. Burn notice himself. Yeah. Yeah. The Burn notice himself. <laughs> this is this is peak. This is this peak who early it? streaming. It's someone. It's some. It, this was like early Hulu days when they were like they didn't really. Leslie Bowen. Yeah. This yeah, is sure. so. This Leslie is when Bowen. and John Scheiben was the the yeah. David Hudgens show ran season one and John Scheiben show ran. Isabella Rossellini's in this. Yeah. It was a real show, guys. I was <laughs> just like, it can, can I still watch it? Is it still on Hulu? I bet Probably. you could still watch it on Hulu. Maybe. The, this, is def- this is definitely that era when Hulu is like, they've realized they need to make their own stuff. Yeah. They haven't yet gotten to the point where they're yeah. doing like Handmaid's Tale and stuff and establishing 2016. Yeah, they're yeah. trying to figure it out. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to watch Shut Eye tonight. You should watch Shut Eye. <laughs> um, I, so at the end of this film, as we mentioned, there's sort of this uh, detente that we're headed towards with, with Tease, played by uh, uh, Victor Garber, where basically Willem Dafoe has come to the realization that he knows he's probably going to die if he goes into this, this, this hotel room. Uh, and at the very least, he needs to bring a gun with him in case he needs to fight for himself. And there's kind of this, like, him and Anne are in the limo on the way there. And he's like, if I don't make it, you know... Blah, blah, here's my sister, this, that, and whatever. Um, there's an amazing kind of moodiness as they walk into that hotel together. And I would argue it's the only time of the, what, six or seven times that Michael Bean's fate is played in this film <laughs> um, where it really fucking worked for me. I'm not saying that it didn't mm. work all the other times. It's certainly clearly kind of the mood he wants to register and so he hits that button a bunch of times and he is and it's a good song and it works but this was the only time where i was like fuck yes like we're headed into something and the shit's about to hit the fan and they look cool as shit as they're walking into this hotel room lobby together this hotel lobby and it's just like it's just all firing in that moment for me um i i don't know it just it it, it, did that did that moment 
register for you guys? Yeah, I think I mean the I like the beanness of it all throughout the movie. I think sure. that it's um like a the quick anecdote on the bean mm. of it all yes, is yes, yes, that Schrader originally wanted uh Bob Dylan to like do the music for the movie and they Schrader had directed a Bob Dylan music video. I can't remember which one, but he so he asked Bob Dylan if he could use like five songs for this movie. And Dylan was like, yeah, like, let me know which ones. Schrader sent him the five songs. Dylan agreed to, like, let him use five songs, but wanted him to use completely different songs. And, sure. like, the two did not budge. Like, neither <laughs> of them would budge. So Schrader was like, all right, fuck it. I'll, you know, go a different direction. So he gets he gets Michael Bean. And I think that the the songs that Bean uses, I think it does really fit the mood for the movie. Like, it really works for me. But especially for the climax, which... Also, the the climax being this like violent shootout is something that Schrader. I don't know what he originally like wanted it to be, but he didn't want it to be like a violent thing. He thought it was too Taxi Driver, like, and he thought that he would be repeating himself. But the studio, like, he didn't have final cut, and the studio mandated that he have the ending be a climactic Amazing. violent shootout because that's what sells, you know, the the violent climax. And so Schrader's kind of way around that was to instead of it being the Taxi Driver shootout to make it be like a song to make it be a ballad and to kind of have it be this sort of like poetic move with the music. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, like you said, I think that that really, really works well. And it does feel more like above reality than just being a stereotypical conventional, like violent shootout at the end of this movie that doesn't, it doesn't really feel like that would fit with what the movie was we've seen before like it's almost lynchian i don't i don't i hate using that term but like i do feel as though it has this sort of out of bodiness Mm. to it um the music and the the slow motionness and the kind Mm -hmm. of all of it just feels um very uh otherworldly in a weird way but yeah what do you think of the climax emily I'm so I'm thinking about Michael Bean. Um, if you were going to say shocked again, I was literally going to like kick you out of this. I'm not. I, I really am not. I've moved on to thinking about Jessica Chastain, but um, she should work with Paul Schrader. Sure, Paul they, Sh- they would be great together. Yeah, yeah. Schrader the Oscar Jessica. Isaac connection. Come on, sure. like it's, yeah. it's got to happen. Just as long as she never works with uh, Simon Kinberg again, I'm happy. <laughs> um. I, I the climax is very yeah there's there's a quality to it that feels a little bit like I don't know how to put this like oh obligatory is the wrong word but it feels like mm-hmm. the movie's ending to end which mm-hmm. is fine and movies should end I don't want to watch a you know 24 hour light sleeper but like <laughs> it is it, def- it is def- should end the yeah. James story <laughs> It is, and it is, it is a good ending, but it does just kind of feel like here's the ending. It's happening yeah. now, mm-hmm. and there's like there is a beautiful, there is a beautiful randomness to this movie yeah. that works a little bit better in retrospect than it does as you're watching it. I think yep. um, it feels a little I, too hard on the plot, like the yeah. ending with the violin shoot. I doesn't feel, yeah, it doesn't feel organic to what the movie is. But then when they're in the jail and he grabs her hand and he kisses it really hard, Oof. I'm like, I don't know. This is great. I don't know what's happening, but this is great. Again, as a cisgendered heterosexual. Do you female, mean kisses you know. it forever? 
Yeah. My part, my part, the credits are going, my partner's like, did he, is he, is this, is this it? Like, does it, does it move at all? And I'm like, no, this is just it. And they're like, you should, I interviewed uh, Will Defoe like a couple of months ago for that movie Inside that that came out this year. And I should have, I should have asked him, what was it like kissing Jessica, kissing, uh, I was going to say Jessica Chastain, kissing Susan Sarandon's hand for 10 minutes straight and not, not being able to open your eyes. (laughs) It's, uh, I think that, I, I think that, uh, you should have, yeah, he's probably still pumped some part of it. He's probably still kissing. In some way we all are. You know Someone, what I, even said. you know what I think? I think Paul Schrader, Jessica Chastain, Willem Dafoe should all work together. I think Jenna Ushkowitz should produce, shucked the movie. I think those three. That movie. It only makes sense at this point. If there's anything really. to come out of this podcast episode, I think yeah. it's that. I so I, I do want to talk about this last scene for a second because it, it is um you know it 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 starts really lovely in the sense of just sort of getting a real feeling that he's um looking forward to a future that he's kind of um sees potential and there's hope in him and there's hope in her as well and then he's like did we ever fuck <laughs> and you're just like god damn it like this was a nice scene why did it but then ultimately the the kind of uh quite frankly sexual desire that they have for each other at the end of the film is not unwarranted nor did i have a problem with it necessarily it's just the fact that like he breaks this really kind of lovely scene by being like i was so fucked up for so long i don't even know if we've done it before um it is is interesting it's a strange energy it's not a bad energy but it kind of turns that scene into something different um but i still liked it and then he kisses her hand forever so like what's what's not to love it's the again i do think that the the reading of this is sort of a a christian conversion reformation story is like really instructive here because it's very much like oh this woman that i was meant to be with i loved but also i didn't remember you know all see there is there is a quality to this that feels a little bit like Pilgrim's Progress, the the John Bunyan book. Um, but oh, you know, with with all the religion, explicit religion taken out, God, Paul Schrader should make Pilgrim Pilgrim's Progress. He should just do it. That's you were going to say shocked again, and I was no, like... <laughs> no. Pilgrim's Progress is some unexploited IP. I think we can make this happen. Everyone's yeah. everyone's into it. Everyone's got Bunyan fever, so. <laughs> I so it's interesting that you say that because now I'm feeling like this, like the kissing of the hand mm. feels yeah. religious, right? Like it mm-hmm. feels, yeah, yeah. It's very much you know the the woman who uh, washes Jesus' feet uh, and then kisses yeah. them, and obviously a hand is not a foot. That's another that's another thing that you can that's take away from this <laughs> hand, is, hand not is not a foot. Um, but it's you know it's a similar it's a similar part of your body. It comes out at the end of a thing that is Depending. a long stick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it it's yeah. I don't know. It's it's such a it's such a fascinating place to end the movie. Um, you know, there there the the list of films that end in a jail with a person visiting another person in jail is long. Um, and yet I'll remember this one. <laughs> like, this is, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I think that, that, um, there's a pat way that this could have ended, mm-hmm. um, where he kind of gives you a bit of an ellipse and he gives you this kind of, you know, 
it's all quote unquote going to be okay. We've been through the gauntlet type thing. Um, but this is that and also more. There's there's a lot more going on in it. Yeah. Have they been in another movie together, these two? They, I feel like these two must have crossed paths again, but I'm just because they've, they've been probably in so been in movies. some like the Mortal but... Instruments three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> sh- oh, listen, Mortal Instruments. Have you got have you gotten engines? Have you gotten? Oh, I've, I've, oh yeah. I've seen Mortal uh, Engines. That is that's oh, a movie. Yeah. I haven't seen that one. I've seen it is it is the Mortal Instruments, right? It the Mortal, like, the Collins. And then yes. the Mortal Engines is another movie. I've okay. Seen, I've seen Mortal Instruments. I have not seen Mortal Engines. You should see Mortal Engines for what's what's his name? What's the character? Shrike. Hugo. Shrike, of course. Yeah. Yeah, Shrike is fantastic. Shrike's gonna be in Shucked also. <laughs> <laughs> He's the title that character, right? That is a that is a joke that like no one's going to understand. Five people, like, <laughs> five people, and they're not listeners of this podcast. <laughs> what is the what is the Venn diagram intersection of Mortal Engines viewers and Shucked viewers? Pretty small. Stephen Griffin Lang, Newman. Oh, <laughs> one person. Yeah, I mean, when I get, uh, googling Willem Dafoe Susan, Googling Willem Dafoe Susan Sarandon, mm-hmm. it's just a bunch of light sleepers. So maybe they yeah, have. Maybe that's it. Something else. It just together. it feels like they. I don't know why I felt like they might have crossed paths again. They feel like but, they exist yeah. in a very similar like aura. Yeah, that you yeah, would think. for sure. There's also like the other thing about Willem Dafoe is that like he's in Wes Anderson movies, but he's also in Aquaman. Like yeah. he's all like he's he does like of, all the know, weird ass Abel Ferreira movies that I fucking yeah. love, like movies that nobody likes that somehow that he knows that like nobody really likes, but they just love working together. Like he, yeah. he really is. I mean, he's been in like 150 movies, and it is like genuinely the widest range of I think anybody. And he talk. I mean, he talks about like he just loves to fucking work. Like he just yeah. he doesn't want to like spend a day without acting. Like he just loves doing it. And he I seems... I think you see you see that in like his filmography for sure. For sure, he seems like a really lovely guy too. Uh, one of my good friends, um, past and future guest Eric Carrasco, was just recently in Prague. Uh, while they were shooting, he's a writer on Foundation, and the hotel he was staying at, Willem Dafoe just happened to be staying at the same hotel, so they were just constantly in the sort of you know cafe area of this. Um, and then I guess after several weeks, they just finally like Willem kind of nodded at him, and he went over <laughs> and they chatted, and he was. I, I just I think that there's something really kind of. Um, he seems really like normal. He's, he's not a mm-hmm. he's not a particularly normal looking guy. He doesn't <laughs> radiate normal, but like. That's why I think, I won't speak for you guys, but one of the things that I love about his performance in um, the Florida Project is just how lovely he seems. Like, he just seems like a sweetheart, and that's just not usually the energy. You know what I mean? Like, people think not necessarily of the lighthouse, but the lighthouse is more the Willem Dafoe energy that people expect to get. So when he was in that, I was just like, you're just such a sweetheart. So good in the lighthouse, though. Just he's yeah. I mean, he's fucking great in the lighthouse. But yeah, I, also... I think that's why. Like, I love I love this performance because it is more like understated than most people would like immediately think of with Defoe. But yeah, I mean, I love the Florida Project. Yeah, it's it's such like a um, like that performance just feels like a warm hug, and I th- I do think that that. I mean, you never really know, right? But like, like he could do some shit that'll get him canceled tomorrow, and we could I certainly like, be having not. a an email thread like, "Hey, should we record another episode before <laughs> like we put that out?" Like with all this in mind, but I yeah. think that 
like the Florida Project feels the most akin to like who he probably actually is. I, did you guys ever listen to A24 did that podcast um, like where they, they do the podcast where they pair people and it was him and Isabella Rossellini oh, that's and cool. it was really nice because like they started off and Isabella was like, like obviously they give them like a list of like questions and like conversation topics to like get into to like help steer the conversation or whatever and almost immediately he's like i don't care about any of that like i just i want to have a conversation with my friend and like it's like they're having conversation about the fact that she has she's like baking bread like while they're talking and like stuff like that and it's like they barely get into like the the craft or like (laughs) yeah exactly like it's it's such like a like just a lovely conversation between the two of them. And I think it speaks a lot to like his vibe. He just likes talking to people and like, he just likes acting and he just likes, you know, his life. He seems really, I don't know. He seems like he's just, he knows how lucky he is to get to do what he's doing. Um, speaking of the Florida project as well. Um, the idea that he would get that, that his son would be uh, Caleb Landry Jones. <laughs> like you're like, yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, I, I think he's just, he's hes a very sort of, um, he's a fascinating guy, a fascinating actor. Uh, he's great in this movie. Um, we're lucky to have him. He's going to probably make a hundred more movies, I imagine. Um, but I want to uh, i want to rate this movie and then we'll talk about the, the film that we're covering next week. Um, I came into this film, I uh, came into this podcast, that is, at like a 74 and now I'm at like an 81. I I, I I really liked this movie. I think that um, it's definitely going to get me to finally sit down and watch First Reformed. Um, and yes. uh, it, it certainly has sort of sparked an interest to do a little bit more digging into into Schrader's filmography for me. Um, so in that respect, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that we got to cover it. But what about you, Emily? Where are you at? Well, you know, I saw this movie in theaters in 1992. Couldn't get into Batman Returns, so I was like, "Well, Light Sleeper is amazing." You know, right? Yeah. No, I did. I have this is the first time I ever saw this movie. Um, mm-hmm. I liked it. I, I, it's yeah. not. I don't think it's going to be a movie that like I uh, return to. But also, I bought it because it was so cheap on iTunes, yeah. and I just was like, "And now I own it." So who knows? Mm-hmm. In some plane, some actually, the perfect time to watch this might flight. be on like a red yes. red eye flight when you can't mm-hmm. sleep very true yeah that's just like that just feels that just feels good to me um yeah i am uh, gonna go 83 yeah. oh okay it's, it's good you know All i right. liked it it's it's it doesn't quite uh doesn't quite crack my 92 top 10 which i'm ranking on the website letterbox but uh uh, mitchell i'm just mitchell i'm just treating you like a famous person i'm just like i'm so i'm just like letterboxed if they were for letterboxed ah <laughs> What about you, Mitchell? I'm, I'm assuming this is very, very high for you. What, 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 what uh, zero to 99, where does this fall for you? Yeah, I mean, it would be like, like it's in, in my, my letter, on my letterbox, I have like my top 250 of all time. It's in my top 10 of all time. So it would okay. be like 99. Like if, you sure. know, it would be as close to perfect as a movie can realistically be. Maybe like a 98 if, you know, the, okay. the top five is like all like 99s for me or whatever. But it's, I, yeah, I adore this movie. I love it more like every time I revisit it. I love talking about it. I really appreciate you guys inviting me on yeah, to, to talk about it. I also, I demand to do a Patreon, Patreon like double feature with Winter Light and First Reformed once you've watched great. First Reformed. Uh, I don't know but... what Winter Light is, but uh, great. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm in. Uh, I, I, I can't wait to do that. I, I do have a question though. Yeah. So obviously Letterboxd does their whole top four thing. Are the posters behind you your top four? Oh, that's a really good question. I wish that they were. Um, 
<laughs> I wish that they were. I should try, but is part of the posters behind me is like what's available in existence uh, for me to get. But After Hours right behind me is my mm-hmm. favorite movie of all time. Um, and then the others are Body Double, Cruising, and American Gigolo. And those are all like very, very high for me. Um, um, couldn't see Body Double, had figured out what the other three were. Um, there, there it is. Of course, now body I, now double. I know what it is. But yes, Emily? What were you I, so I change my top four every month to a different theme. Oh, okay. Do, do, yeah. you, do you dislike that? Do you judge me for doing that? I dislike people who keep it rigid. I I oh, love okay. themes. I'm not smart enough to think of themes. Like I I love themes. I wish that I could pull off themes. What I do is my top four, the first of every month, I change it to like my four favorite movies that I saw for the first time the previous month or whatever. Oh, so cool. I, I switch it out every month for, for that reason. I think it's very boring to keep the same top four. Right now do I have a top four though? Me? Yeah. Of all time, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know what it is on my. Li- I'll check what my list is right now. I know curious. it's After Hours is number one okay. for sure, like permanently forever. Number two is uh, Jean Delmon. Number three is Jackie Brown, okay. and then four is Devil in a Blue Dress. Hell yeah, these are great, great picks. I uh, uh, right now my my top four are movies with the word summer in the title. Let's hear them. Let's hear them. Right right now my top four is um uh a bright brighter summer day, um uh my summer of love, kind of a sadly forgotten lesbian movie. Yeah, just Uh, I think just came out or is about to come out on Blu-ray from Imprint in Australia. Very exciting. Awesome. Um the the endless summer, great surfing Mm -hmm. doc, Mm -hmm. and um Midsummer, one of my favorite movies ever made. I stretched no it. Summer rental. Samar. Interesting. Samar. No summer no. rental. <laughs> no. Listen, I really, you know, I, I thought I thought about a lot of things. I thought long and hard. Actually, no, I just threw it together in like five minutes. But uh, yeah, you must, Mitchell. You must be very excited for the Criterion of After Hours. That. Uh... Oh, I yeah, I I have in. I'm pitching hard. I'm trying to interview Griffin Dunn and Amy Robinson oh, for wow. it for something for Letterbox. Maybe that's super. Cool. By the time this drops, that'll be like confirmed. But I'm hoping that is like that is happening soon. That, that, uh, that, I'm, I'm that very, sounds amazing. I literally, my my partner can verify that when i saw that announcement that morning in my email i screamed and ran around my apartment (laughs) oh yeah Um, also i you know criterion has some beautiful box art but that is some beautiful box art really yeah they they really just uh really killed it this time mitchell i do want to ask you what are your top five paul schrader movies if you have them off the dome oh yeah that's a good question uh so light sleeper then blue collar mishima First Reformed and Autofocus are my top five. Awesome. Interesting. I, you know, he's, I saw Autofocus back when it came out Mm -hmm. and I just, I was too young. I think like I was just sort of, I think it's, is it 98? Is it something? 2002. Oh, 2002. Okay. So I I remember seeing it and just kind of being like, I don't really get this. And I, I, as I think is the case with generally speaking, great movies, I, I can be dismissive if I don't get it right off the bat. Um, so a lot of his movies, I need to reevaluate. Yeah. Like I, I, I didn't saw like Cat people and I was like, I, this is cool, I guess, but like, I think it was cool. As well. Yeah. I, I like the one that I always reference for that. I didn't like alien the first time that mm-hmm. I saw that when I was like a teenager, mm-hmm. like I thought it was boring. And then like, 
10 years later, I'm like, this is literally one of the greatest movies ever yeah. made. Like, what the fuck is wrong with me? So there are so many movies like that that are, like, my favorite movies now that I, like, straight up didn't like when I first saw them. One of the neat things about me is that I'm never wrong. <laughs> Every time I have an opinion, that is true. I it's true. to it's hold true. it for the rest just, of my yeah, life. Yeah, it's, it's, it's easier to disagree with Emily than it is to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'll say this, you know, I, the, the, Similar to you guys, or at least the, just maybe not Emily, but you, Mitchell, the idea of like being able to reevaluate and mm-hmm. being able to sort of t- take another look at something. Um, Lynch was very much that for me. Mm. Uh, I was a Spielberg kid and Lynch could not be more dissimilar to that. It took me a very long time, basically film school, to turn that part of my brain off and be able to kind of open myself up to things that don't fit into a rigid sort of structure. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I'm the better for it, but... Um, for a long time could not kind of lock into movies that are for lack of a better term plotless if you will the vibe Mm -hmm. movies we're kind of talking about where it's like you need to just kind of let this movie wash over you and just like let it be um Mm -hmm. and i think i think viewers are taught to not be that way i think by the things that we watch and i think it's a fucking bummer um it's why we are where we are right now as a (laughs) as a film culture i think um which is that people just need to kind of allow themselves to just you know, stop forcing your views on a movie and let the movie. Yeah, meet the movie where it's at. It's, yeah, yeah. So, but but be that as may. I love that this podcast about the the Paul Schrader film Light Sleeper is also about three people from Los Angeles trying to figure out what Shucked is about with like very little information. <laughs> this, I mean, this episode which was fantastic, and Mitchell, thank you so much for being here. Thank I you. love that there's a good fifteen minute swath <laughs> in the center about the. Tony. <laughs> This is gonna be, I fucking love be live timeless, theater. I love live theater. Yeah, I'm gonna like oh. I, the next time I go on double features, it's gonna be I'm gonna make Phil go to some live theater. Let's go to I'll New York that. and we'll see Shucked and we'll see something else and we'll do. Can we a, see a, um, Kimberly Akimbo? Listen, listen, is Music Man still open? Because it's kind of like Music, music Man. Man. <laughs> okay, well we could just go see it again. Actually, I don't think it's open anymore. Uh, yeah we'll see we're gonna see two plays and then we'll go uh, two musicals and then we'll do a double feature episode on those two (laughs) musicals it's gonna be great uh mitchell where can where can people find you and how can people uh listen to you and read you and and digest you yeah um i mean digest (laughs) uh uh, my letterbox is just letterbox.com slash Mitchell. I am still uh, regrettably on Twitter at it is Mitchell. If uh-huh. you are, you know, figuring out the there. Twitter thing, it's yeah. it's the best place to promote my fucking work. Like, I I'm know. just going to stay there, unfortunately, yeah. until it like officially Dies. is yeah. dead. But I, I hate being on there. Um, yeah. Letterbox. Yeah. Letterbox podcast, the letterbox show. I do stuff on there. Um, I write stuff for our editorial on letterbox, which is called journal, which on the web and the app there's like a tab at the top that you can find i also freelance a decent amount mostly at pace magazine so you can find a decent amount of stuff from me on pace which i did last year i wrote an essay on light sleeper um this year i wrote an essay on blue collar so yeah check that stuff out this was amazing i don't yes i no longer rank movies on letterboxd Mm -hmm. i just click the little heart if i Mm -hmm. like it and do you do you get mad about that is that a thing that at letterboxd hq you're all like oof Ooh, those yeah, I think most honestly most of my coworkers just do what you do like they give it a heart or they don't give it a heart they don't do ratings I am the complete opposite where I do ratings but I don't do hearts because I feel like it's like I I don't understand the like 
rating something low and giving it a heart like if i want to give something a heart like i would just rate it highly like i don't i don't believe in guilty pleasures i don't believe in like this movie's bad but i love watching it so let me give it like a, a two star rating and i'll give it a heart like fuck that like if i like the movie i'm gonna give it you know a high rating so My i don't favorite. do hearts but I, I i have no problem with the way that you'd handle it i loved i loved when i was rating i did love giving it like two and a half stars and a heart which is what mm. i the one time i did that was for halloween ends where i was like i don't know that this movie works at all, but it's <laughs> trying something. And I, I still think about that movie way more than a lot of other movies. So, yeah. Can I, yeah. can I just say that one of my favorite runners about this episode has been Emily trying to figure out how to make the letterbox people love her as much as possible. <laughs> do, do you I like when I do that? Or do you not like when I do yeah. that? Have you, have you noticed? Are you me? all, have you are you all on, on your work Slack saying, why does Emily keep doing this? <laughs> You talk about me? <laughs> Mitchell, this was a wonderful episode. We're so thankful that you came on. We hope that you'll come back in the future. Absolutely. Can't wait to talk about Anytime. whatever Winner's Light is and First Reformed. It's going to be great. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, been, it's been wonderful. And we can't wait to talk with you again in the future. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. Talk to you soon. Bye. 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 Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.